Hello. Hello, and welcome to Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering. I'm Andrew, and I'm here today with Danielle Vigioni. I think I've pronounced that badly, but um, he'll <laughs> that in, in a moment. Uh, Claire's uh, skiving and frolicking up in Scotland, so you won't get to hear from her this week. Um, but uh, we are going to do a deep dive today with Daniele, and he's going to explain uh, one of his papers. So uh, do you want to give us a title and, and, and a kind of one second snapshot of what the paper's about? Mm -hmm. Okay, so hi everyone. Um, so the title of the paper is a bit long, a bit of a mouthful, honestly, but Reduced Polar Transport Due to Stratospheric Heating Under Stratospheric Aerosols Geoengineering. And okay, well, they, that's, your, that's your second. You don't get any more than that. You're not allowed <laughs> to uh, introduce it any further. Um, so um, let's, let's get some background um, first. So um, you're at Cornell right now. Which yes, is, I, I, am. I, looked, I looked it up on the map and it's, you, it, it kind of says New York, but it's really nowhere near New York at all, is it? It's miles away. It's like a Right, a lot of people think that I'm, we're close, but they're like five hours from New York. Yeah, it's miles I'm closer to Canada. I'm closer to Canada. <laughs> Yeah, fake New York, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, how long have you been there? Uh, it's almost two years now. It's going to be two years okay. in November. And you're you're a postdoc, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Cool. Um, and have you did, did your um, doctoral thesis cover geoengineering, or is this a new angle, avenue of research for you? Hang on. Um, oops, sorry. Dan? Uh Yeah, I'm here. Uh, no, my, my PhD thesis was mostly about geoengineering. I started out uh, looking at volcanoes and climate modeling of um, volcanoes, mostly Pinatubo and very large explosive volcanic eruptions. But then I moved into geoengineering, sulfate geoengineering, and that's what I did most of my thesis about. So, and who was your supervisor for your PhD? Uh, I did my PhD in Italy. So not here okay. in the United States. Uh, so his name is Gianni Piteri. Uh, okay. He's also doubled a bit in engineering in the past, uh, but it was kind of a completely new project, the one we started out in 20, now it was 2017. Okay, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are you know, interested in the kind of career aspects of what you're doing. So um, mm -hmm. are you, do you spend all day, your day doing research or have you got a lot of teaching responsibilities? You know, what's your actual job? Right now, uh, these two years of postdoc, I've basically I've basically been doing research 100% of the time. time. Okay. Uh, well, research slash, I mean, in a sense, both for myself and a bit of mentoring and helping our PhD students. We have, um, as, well, we're kind of a small group with Doug McMartin at Cornell, but we're sort of growing. And now we have two PhD students. Um, okay. And we're sort of planning to expand even more. So yeah, but it's mostly just research right now. I, I did more teaching while I was doing my PhD actually, and I wouldn't mind going back to teaching a bit in the future, but for now I'm just- And, and how, how long is the Cornell gig last, lasting for? Because a lot of uh, uh, postdocs are fixed term, aren't they, right? Yeah, not mine and I have no idea. Let's just say that I'm, for now, both me and Doug hope we can go on as long as possible, probably another couple of years at least. We've definitely okay, cool. a lot of things to do. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know well. Um, we've done some work together. So, um, you know, it, it sounds like a, a good gig. And I had a look on uh, Google Maps the other day at your uh, your campus. It's, it sounds like a really nice place to go. Like a really, you know, lovely place to to to, you know, spend time in and 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 working. Is that you know, is that how you feel? You do you feel yeah, positive about the place? Yeah, I simply love the place. Yes. Uh, yeah, it looks it looks like a gorgeous place. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's. 
it's very, it used to be even nicer before all of this mess. Uh, <laughs> it tends to be way colder, uh, way too cold in the winter sometimes, but you know, it's still nice. It's still, it's a very yeah, yeah, New, New York's got pretty brutal winter seasons, isn't it? Yeah. The whole East coast yeah. is, is pretty hard. So if you're, yeah. if you're from Italy, I guess that's a bit of a shock because it doesn't really get, you know, other than in the mountains, you don't have really. Yeah. But I, I, I used to live very close to the mountains, very up high in the mountains. So it's oh, right, okay. and I'm, I'm used to having that much snow. It's fine. The, the problem here is just that it lasts quite a long time and you can go like two or three weeks without really seeing the sun. That's a bit of a blow sometimes, but you know. Yeah, I know uh, Claire Hayward's up in Tromso in Norway, and that oh, uh, okay. she, she properly doesn't see the sun for weeks. There's just nothing there. It's just like twilight for a couple of hours every day. Sounds pretty brutal, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes you get, you know, plays a bit of tricks in the mood. So actually, you know, <laughs> the story is that Cornell used to be one of the well, the the university where where there were the biggest number of suicides by students. Uh, now they like. Like, yeah, 20 years ago, it used to be pretty brutal. Now they've improved things a lot, mostly by putting uh, safety nets, but also by, you know, focusing a bit more on mental health. So Yeah, I'd, I'd say that the safety net should really be a last resort. It's like, yeah, yeah, if but... you have to catch people on the way down, yeah, your student welfare has gone a bit wrong somewhere. No, but, well, the thing with safety nets is that, you know, they tend, it's one of those funny things where even just by being there, it, get, it gives people time to reconsider and just to think about it more. So it yeah, actually tends tends to, to, to stop I would have thought, things. But, you know. I would have thought that Cornell would have had a good quality of life, but yeah, well, that's a, a side that you don't normally see. I guess yeah. you know, when people talk about mental health in um, in academia, uh, you know, seeing suicide netting really brings it home. So yeah, hopefully we can um, move on and become a bit a, yes. a slightly more positive side of it. Academia. But I'd really like to understand your. Um, you know, your motivations and, and what, what got you into this? Because, you know, a lot of people sort of study things for a variety of different reasons. They, you know, they search for a job in academia and they, you know, they just take what comes. Some people are particularly technically brilliant and they, you know, they go into something they're fascinated by, but they don't really, you know, care one way about it or another. It's just a kind of like a game of chess for them, right? Mm-hmm. And other people come to it from a, you know, the real sort of firebrand campaigners and they really want to change the world. So, you know, how did, how did you end up doing this? What, what's, um, what's your, uh, uh, angle on the whole kind of study of, of geoengineering what, what 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 brought you into it as an area of interest well i got into it like pretty casually in the sense that um well first of all i mean unlike the united states and also a few countries in europe like i had never even heard the term geoengineering and no one in my thesis committee had and everybody thought it was quite crazy um and i just got into it because you know at the beginning i just like I really like modeling and, you know, um, atmospheric physics. So at the beginning, it was just like, oh, you know, just try these. That sounds weird. But, uh, but then I have to say that, you know, meeting the community and starting to discuss the thing, I really got fascinated by the idea that what I was researching at the beginning, which was volcanic eruptions, could be in a way maybe leveraged to, well, as you said, I mean, it sounds a bit bombastic, but, you know, save the word. May so I wouldn't usually use the word save the word, but you know, I like the idea of us having a plane, a, a plan B, a plan C, possibly a plane, yeah. a, a plan that, Z that, that we're never going to use. You know, but that, I do that, like that, the idea that, of, of that you know, plan B. B framing certainly very common um, in this field, and a lot of people criticised it actually. But I think that as a you know a helpful mnemonic and shortcut for the concept, I think it helps a lot of people understand. Um, you know what this field of research is 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 potentially about. So yeah, so I mean, just to kind of explain that back to you, I think what mm-hmm. you what you were saying is there that, is that you got into it because you were 
you know, atmospheric dynamicist and you understand the phenomena and then mm-hmm. you kind of thought, well, hey, there's a political opportunity here. We can kind of leverage this effect and, you know, achieve a result. And I think uh, that, to some extent, that's how a lot of people from the uh, sciences side of things come mm-hmm. into it. I mean, I'm, I come into it more from the sort of activist side. So for me, it's always been about, you know, the right policy response and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I get it. I, just a, a bit of uh, fawning, which I really shouldn't kind of get into here because um, uh, I, uh, I try to be as unpleasant as possible to everyone that comes on the show. But um, the uh, I've always kind of felt that the atmospheric dynamicists and the atmospheric chemists and their, their ocean counterparts are really at the kind of top of the tree. They, they seem to be doing the, you know, the, the, the most propeller head kind of stuff in our discipline. Um, being a grease monkey myself, I don't, um, uh, I don't understand half the stuff that you guys do. Um, is that perception accurate? You know, are, 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 is what you're doing really the kind of, um, uh, you know, the intellectual zenith of the discipline um or, or or are you just punching numbers into computers and letting them do all the thinking for you how 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 would you explain what you do to people who are outside that on a day-to-day basis well so i have to say that kind of the the goal of what i'm doing changes a lot from what i was doing during my phd and what i'm doing now at cornell so basically as you said while i was doing while i was doing my phd it was most the intellectual intellectual curiosity of sort of asking, is there anything that we haven't, that people before me haven't thought about and anything that could, you know, actually prevent geoengineering from ever being implemented? So that's the kind of things I was looking at. I looked at, for instance, the increase of methane in the atmosphere due to sulfur geoengineering. And because, you know, we thought, oh, if methane increases too much, and that's greenhouse gas, then you know it warms yeah, more than actually cool. So finding the concept, right? Right, right, and it was it, it was quite um, cool, but in a way, as you say, it was more towards the um, let's put it like you know just get tell let, just looking at the model results and see what it what happens and sort of say oh you know is this important is this not important would would this matter would this not matter uh, the way I'm moving. The way we're moving things now at Cornell and the thing that I really love about the kind of research we're doing is that we are asking a bit more um, fundamental different kind of questions in the sense that we've sort of, you know, uh, there was a talk at the Gordon conference two years ago now, three years ago, I think. Um, about, yeah, I missed that one, know, Right. But no, um, uh, about someone, and I remember who he was saying about, you know, there's a lot of known unknowns that and those we've sort of solved in the sense we kind of know that at least from the atmospheric science point of view there isn't really anything that we've missed there isn't like a big effect that we haven't considered that would actually you know destroy uh the planet if we ever implemented geoengineering so uh there might be other unknown unknowns and you know we're thinking about those but actually the way in which we're moving the dialogue in which we're sort of moving into engineering it's sort of thinking about it from a more um, engineering perspective. That's what Doug, uh, my boss, likes to say in the sense of saying, you know, we know that we could do it, but how, you know, what are the yeah. ways, how many different ways can we do it? Uh, how, how many different outcomes can we get? How many of these are important? How detectable would it be? So in a way, we're moving towards uh, something that it's much more tied to the governance community and to so, so yeah yeah I've, 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 kept, I've kept an eye I've kept an eye on some of the work that you've done there I, I I think it's really interesting the kind of um the whole sort of scope of what of what you've done because 
Um, you, you're quite right in that. I, one of my frustrations with um, uh, the modeling community within geoengineering is a lot of what they do tends to seem pretty kind of abstract. And mm -hmm. what you said there, I think, is really important because you're saying, you know, it's critical to tie um, the modeling around the interventions and the policy uh, decisions mm -hmm. that, that, that work. And, uh, you know, my own um, uh, works, you know, I do a variety of different things, some of them quite weird and zany and some of them quite sensible and you know a fairly core part of what I do is engineering stuff um, and, and I, I think that's kind of interesting what you said there because you're, you're talking about the practical side of it and from, from, from my point of view that, that practicality comes from you know give me a mission and I'll fly it basically mm -hmm. what, what, what have I got to take where and when do you want it taken and how much is there and what hole has it got to come out of and what temperature and pressure and all of that which is the mm -hmm. kind of stuff that engineers bother about all the time right so you're you're talking about the kind of atmospheric science and atmospheric dynamics counterpart to that mm -hmm. um which is which is interesting it's nice to see sort of these different um uh ways of working um interface so in in terms of the, the practicalities i mean i i think it's really uh, often you know people look at the results that other people have but they don't see the practicalities of of uh, how, how they do these papers so you know what it taught, taught me through doing a paper of this kind of thing i mean do you do, is most of the work coming up with the you know the concept and uh, and then the the setup of the experiment is is relatively trivial and then maybe the results interpretation is kind of hard or, or does it take you know three months of carefully hand rolling all of your code and all of your input data to make sure the model is exactly finely tuned and works correctly i, I honestly have no idea what you guys do all day so i'd love to know <laughs> i'm sure plenty of other people listening don't have a clue either so, so um for the mod for the model that i used while i was doing my phd thesis it was a pretty small models developed in the 80s and it was mostly you know to be manually set up every time and that actually required a lot of effort but like a toy, a toy model, yeah. A toy, sort of a, toy, a, a, a middle complexity model, middle of the way complexity model. So it was actually quite hard. But even the toy models are actually quite hard to set up. And um, does this run on a workstation or does it run on a supercomputer? On a workstation, what? yes. That was, the, okay. that was the funny thing in a way, in the sense that, you know, if I messed up something, I was not really wasting anybody's money except, you know, maybe one day at yeah, a yeah. time. So the difference now here at Cornell, that we mostly work with the models that uh, DOE and that NCAR use and yeah. a lot of other Earth system models that are part of KIMIP-6, is that those are really huge, incredibly complex models. So all this setup part, most of that is left to you know the actual professionals at NASA and CAR or wherever, um, and so you don't really have to worry about that. You do have to worry about you know more about thinking about your experiment before you run it because it so starts to get very like expensive. Something on AWS then, so you just put your data layer in, and someone else takes care of making sure that the model computes correctly. And uh... um, no, not really. In the sense, I tend to in the sense the overall. I mean the the model itself, the over the underlying, for instance, you know, balancing of the oceans for a thousand years, that part is, is all done before. But then okay. uh, I tend to do the sort of like final fine tuning and, you know, doing the final tests and then really okay. running the models uh, from scratch. That's what I do also for um, all our PhD students from come more from an so what you're doing is kind of like an, an, do, like yeah. an increment on some underlying work that's been done by other people right yes like a yes, kind of yes. Step. okay the that's, that's, yes that's... The, the the fundamentals are there and you know everything works and we know that it works people write uh the papers about you know actually validating the models so we don't really yeah. have to think about that mostly although, although we still do 
for some things. But then, yeah, so a lot of the work is done before, otherwise there wouldn't be much time. And Okay. And then... And how, how, how long does the compute take? I mean, like, are you talking a six-week computer run or are you talking something that computes over the weekend or what? Um, what kind of... So most of the models run, that we're using right now take about seven to nine hours per year of simulation. Okay. So if you have to do, you know, 30 years, it's kind of a couple of weeks that you have to wait. Okay. And um, how many, I mean, how many, like, uh, the computers, did, did you ever go and visit these computers or do you, did they just sort of at the end of a phone line, as it were? They are, so, well, I mean, um, the ones that I used, you know, you, you, you reach, yeah, they, they are like in Nevada or somewhere where the, the energy is very cheap, where Anchor, yeah, yeah. wherever Anchor is. Uh, their computer station Boulder. and nobody nobody's ever been there and you know that's the kind of thing also okay. with, right. with all the with all that's been going on our kind of lab has been doing things exactly as we would have done it before the covid crisis because we just do everything from the computer i mean i don't even need to have anything installed except the terminal on my okay. computer and you just, you know so just you just like you yeah. press a button and it uses you know, you do hundreds of thousands of dollars of compute and yeah, you that's kind of, half, a that's, coal, yeah. half a coal mine worth of electricity and it just kind of happens and comes back to you, right? Yeah, and it's kind of, and it's kind of still crazy for me in the sense that every time I have to press the last enter and finally start the simulation, I still get that anxiety. And when I have simulations running, <laughs> I do wake up in the morning and, you know, you get an email after every year of simulation. So you have to obsess about it crashes. Sometimes it crashes for no reason at all. Well, yeah, I, I was. Uh, I've only done two. Resubmit that, you know. And sometimes yeah, know, you've I'd... done a mistake, and sometimes there is there is something like you know some numerical error, and you have to fix that. Uh, sometimes you've just forgot about putting your SO two, so you're actually oh, and you know. <laughs> so there's the funny thing, and you uh, have to go and explain something that you've wasted like hundreds of thousands of pounds of yeah. dollars of compute because you forgot to do something correctly. Yeah. Right? So one That's year ago, we were trying to modify part of the code to do something fancier, and. At one point, I think like I completely froze the planet like three times, and I really <laughs> mean like you know at one point it's I'm sure you can just see that it goes from 300 Kelvin to like 220. Like oops, I think I, I think I made a mistake. Like I turned down the sun by 70 percent. That's not what we wanted. So and how much um, how much money like uh, do these experiments cost to run? I mean, like I'm, I was using kind of banding around kind of hundred thousand dollars, but I, I don't know whether that's I think correct. That's kind of, I think that's quite the ballpark. I mean, we have a large grant. A lot of money <laughs> yeah it's a lot of money so that's why i say you know it's kind of my so like uh, every time you press enter it's like setting a tesla model s on fire yes, right that's exactly <laughs> that and that's what it feels like honestly like you know it, it, is what it feels like so now that we are not running any new experiments because we just have a ton of things to look at I'm kind of relieved that I don't have to do that. You know, I'm like, yeah, well, I've, I've, I've only done two modeling papers in my life. One of them never got published because the <laughs> result was backwards from what we thought it was going to be. And the other one got stuck because the data center literally caught fire while we were trying to run our modeling experiment. So my record of being a modeler is like just worse than useless. I'm like an E minus <laughs> fail, unfortunately. So talk to me about this, this specific paper and experiments you, you run. So what's the kind of premise behind it? What are you trying to do with the uh, experiment? Because what I, what I, I always like to, you know, it's reviewer two, so I always should mm -hmm. be shooting first and asking questions later. What I think you've done is done a model into comparison of how um, differences in stratospheric heating effect between different models affects polewood transport of aerosols when they're injected primarily in the tropics. Is that right, or have I just got completely the wrong paper? 
so you got it sort of wrong in the sense that it's just one model and it's the simulations that they were run in actually in 2017, the, G the geoengineering large ensemble. That, okay. Uh, people at NCAR and Cornell ran before I was even there about, um, uh, about geoengineering, but it's such a, so it's a 21 um, ensemble member. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ensemble of 21 runs of geoengineering ran for 80 years. So there's oh, so it's a, a it's huge an ensemble, amount. but it's not a model into comparison project. No, it's so you're not. Doing... That's part of the that's part of my next project that we're running okay. some comparisons. But for now, there was just these, and you know, um, that's that's one of the challenges in modeling. In this, is that uh, sometimes you can get some really nice, easy papers if you have a big intercomparison, uh, and you yep. know, you can learn a lot. But the problem is that when you have to go and understand what's actually going on in the model you do need to spend a lot of time understanding exactly what's going on in the model. And that's very hard to do when you have four or five models. So the so first step is always like one tops two models where you can dive in and talk with the people. You know, a, a lot of the time is like, well, I mean, you know, I have no idea about what's going on here. You know, you need to ask more people, all the people that contributed to, to actually getting the model to run. So. All right. So, 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 let me just explain back to you what I think you've explained to me. So when you're setting these things up, you don't just kind of like play with the model. You go and like physically talk to people or talk to them over Zoom or whatever and say, you know, how does the model handle this bit? How does the model handle that bit? You know, and so you yes, really kind of understand the, conceptually yeah. how it's put together, right? And then you put your experiment on top of that knowledge. That's, that's news to me. I didn't realize well, that people the, did the, that. The main thing when you look at something in your model is that you have to ask yourself, is what we're looking, what we're seeing real? In the sense, is it physically plausible? Okay, it, real yeah. maybe is not the right word, but physically plausible. So do we have an explanation or is this just something that, you know, it's happening and we have no idea why. Yeah, so it's like you don't want to you don't want to publish something. It's just a model artifact, right? It's something right, that you right. know you want to know that it's a real thing. So we, you've used the word ensemble, and I uh -huh. I think I know what that means. So um, a, an ensemble, as as far as I understand it, is that you you vary the starting conditions and the interventions. So you create a bit of like is it uh, put a bit of noise in, or is it is it is a stochastic modeling approach? So you have some slightly varied start points, and then you run them all and then see where the model performs so that you know that it's not just a, uh, a, a result of the exact starting conditions that you used. Is that, have I got that right? Or do I just- Yeah, there are, various, there, there are various ways in which you can get an ensemble. Sometimes it's statistical ensemble, like statistical sampling, but that's something you do most for uh, weather forecast. Like the, the thing you said, it's done more when you do ensemble weather forecast, where you have the same initial conditions, but in, since you have some uncertainty for instance, in your surface pressure. So you just yep. run the entire ensemble with slightly varying um, conditions. The thing we do here, considering these are, you know, a hundred year simulation. So the real uncertainty is not um, in the, you know, in the initial condition in that year, but more in the underlying conditions of the ocean. So you try to have every ensemble member to have sort of a, their own ocean state, you know, okay. every time with plausible, with the, with the correct chemistry. So you just have the model, the, the ocean relax to a certain state and then pick points where, you know, your ocean is really um, independent between one and the other. So you can see that, you know, the signal you're looking at is not the, the North Atlantic oscillation in one model or the El Nino oscillation in one okay. model just being yeah, warm, yeah. you know? And so the, then uh, you don't really, I mean, you don't need it, every time you don't always need a large ensemble 
but having a large ensemble allows you to really pinpoint and say like, oh, you know, this is the noise. We, I have, you know, we have another paper in, in progress that I'm working on where I try to discuss this a bit more, talk about, you know, what's natural variability. And when we talk about any effect, uh, you know, how hard, and sometimes it's really hard to distinguish, you know, an effect from natural variability. And you can either have, you know, if you have 4,000 years of simulation, then you can do, you can definitely detect something. But if you just have 100 years, because, you know, the, RC, the, the, the underlying emission scenarios we have done from that far. So if we just want 100 years, then having 21 ensemble members means, again, having 2,000 years in which to look and some really robust information on what's statistical so you, noise, what so you'd run a yeah. so you'd run 20, 20, 20 different ensemble members for a hundred years, and that's a sort of typical experiment. Is that right? Yes, that's mostly you know even for the new Kimip six experiments. That's usually you start around you you you, you do historical runs from eighteen fifty to two thousand. You know, sort of yep. uh, checking that your model is actually you know warming where it should and doing what it should. Uh, and then you just project that in the future with different emission scenarios, and okay. so and roughly so, it's so usually hundred years. Why yeah. did you choose this particular model? I mean, is it? Um, tell me what's in it. I mean, has it got um, active vegetation, good sea ice models? Has it got chemistry climate, or is it just a basic GCM? What what exactly is going on in this model? Well, CSM, so the the anchor model that we used is probably. I mean, you know, the so CSM. Every model what does that What does that stand for? Because uh, a lot of people want co community Earth system model. Okay. Yeah. And and you know the setup we use is called Wacom, which is whole atmosphere climate chemistry model. So yeah. basically, um, uh, you know everybody's going to say that their model is the best, but honestly, CESM is one of the best models that we have around in the world. And you've and, got uh, you're you're particularly using the Wacom fork of yes. CESM, yeah. Yes, which is basically yeah. which means that we have a lot of uh, vertical levels. We can really get the stratosphere right, and we need that if yeah. we want to have you know, the stratospheric sulfate, and then uh, it it, you, you're looking specifically at, yeah, yeah, you need specifically the aerosol condensation and the transport of aerosols within the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've one of my current projects or what I'm trying to get going is some high top modeling with Wacom X. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I know a tiny little bit about the model that you've used. And, uh, you know, the, the, the big advantage with Wacom, as you point out, is that it's modeling the upper atmosphere is mm -hmm. just streets ahead of anything else, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, right Wacom X, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one, the one you said, it's even a higher top, and it has space weather. So yes, it has a ionosphere uh, and yeah. a bit of so. So it's even for um, for other processes. But yeah, the one we have is mostly focused on the stratosphere, which is the part um, that you don't really need that if you're just doing climate projections for a hundred years, because most of what you care about, you know, gases mix very well. Um, so you can, you know, you can get by and if what you really care about is having a higher horizontal resolution it's just looking at what happens at the surface and you're just looking at climate change, you can get yeah. by using much, um, much shallower, much lower top models. But if you really want your stratosphere, because, you know, maybe you need ozone and again, you need stratospheric aerosols, then you really need a lot of levels and they increase the complexity and increase the amount yeah. of running time because, you know, then you have the radiative code code that is the 
um, the, the part that actually, you know, looks at the radiation up and down in every level. So we have 70 vertical levels, most of them in the stratosphere. And so for every level, you know, at every time. So you're transmitting and receiving radiation yeah. to layers up and, and below. And you've also run in the chemistry inside that model as well. So mm -hmm. that's my that's my understanding of Wacom X. It's a pretty, uh, Wacom is a pretty fearsomely expensive model to run, isn't it? Like Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, often, it's mostly... You often run pretty short periods of time on it because it's so expensive. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing, you know, in the sense, if we had a, the, the more things you want, the more it's expensive and the more you have to think carefully about um, your experiments and you cannot just waste too much time. So it's a bit of a balance sometimes. Like, for instance, okay. we don't really use, um, we use a very simple tropospheric chemistry because we don't really care at the moment what happens in the troposphere we are more concerned with what happens in the stratosphere where you actually do need uh, a much more complex uh, um, chemistry in the stratosphere. But it's a balance again, because also the chemistry takes a lot. And then again, as you said, there's a radiation code that takes a lot of effort and takes, takes a lot of um, expense. There is the ocean, you know, you can turn off the ocean if you want and just run with this lab ocean. There is sea ice, land model. There's a lot of stuff that goes in. And the more stuff you put in, the more complex your response is going to be it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be more correct in many ways you know and when you have such a complex model actually the challenge is to try to separate the various effects you can, that you cannot always do you cannot say oh we just turned these off because then you have to make sure that your response is correct so when you have yeah, a lot of stuff you have to say like oh you know precipitation is going down in india uh but what is driving that you know and it's very hard part of that you can uh, so you might you might do an experiment by isolating um, different elements of the model and running the experiment with other you know things like sea ice turned off and vegetation response turned off just to kind of get that initial response pinned down and then you you then would reintroduce that complexity later to to get a deeper understanding is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean okay. you do have to understand exactly what's going on physically speaking so that then you can understand oh this is this comes from this and from this you know you cannot just say oh this is what the model's doing and that's it. You really okay, have to understand yeah. what's so going on. So, Otherwise, so your reviewer two is always going to reject your paper. Okay. Reviewer two always rejects your paper. Um, so I've the, always um, had, sorry, let me say this though. Uh, so for this paper, for instance, like this year, I've uh, published three papers already and I've had all absolutely awesome reviewers. And even when they had, you know, a lot of suggestions, they were always super kind. So a lot of these things yeah. about, we really can manage. And I've been trying to do the same you know, I've reviewed a lot of papers this year because a lot of people are just stuck at home writing papers. And, you know, I've really, we, I, it's really nice and you can tell how better the paper is if reviewers are always, you know, nice to you, even if they don't like what you've written. But, you know, sometimes well, you can still a, get them. I, I had an amazing experience recently. We had three reviews of a paper and they all accepted it the first time. And we wrote to the we wrote to the editor and said, like, what's going on? Are is you sure? Did they read the paper? Did they read the paper? Yeah. Yeah, it's just bots that you sent it to or something, because yeah. no, nobody should be accepting our papers. But anyway, so the, talk me through the, what, what you found in terms of the, the physical mechanism and, and, and what lessons you think we can learn. Assuming that this model isn't you know just turning up something which is complete nonsense mm -hmm. that, that that gets um proved to be false later by some other piece of research but what do you think we've discovered so um this is in general um something that i've always been interested 
in, and there's been a lot of work um, also in the past, sort of trying to understand when we put this, these aerosols out there, uh, and we put them in the stratosphere, they heat up the stratosphere because they absorb part of the infrared radiation. So, you know, you have this big blob of heating in the stratosphere. And, and that's what, sulfur, what, sulfur aerosols, right? I mean, black yes, carbon does that, but, but sulfur aerosols would do that. So sulfur aerosols, you're saying that they, 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 they reflect They reflect solar radiation. They absorb, they absorb a bit of IR, is that right? Yes, they absorb a bit of IR, some of that and from is the that near and, IR or far IR? Uh, it's mostly near IR, but yeah, it's, okay. it's, yeah it's, it's mostly near IR, so um, you, you get... Just slightly the, redder than red. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... You know, the bigger they are, so the bigger they are, the more they absorb, and they actually, the less they reflect. So one of the papers I wrote like, during my PhD was also looking at that, and you know, you have this interplay, and a lot of people focus on, since most of the work has been studying, you know, injecting at the equator and close to the equator, so asking what would happen to the tropical stratospheric circulation, what would happen to the quasi-biennial oscillation, and but, how these would, you know, let, let, let me just address that, that point mm-hmm. that you made, because I think that's really important. So in terms of the physics, I think mm-hmm. what you've just explained, and that this kind of pennies just dropped for me here, is that the absorption is done by the volume of the material, the thickness of the material, right? It's like a kind of, um, uh, you know, a very, uh, if you have a very thin piece of stained glass, it looks almost colorless, and a very thick mm-hmm. piece of stained glass looks very strongly colored, right? But the reflection of the sunlight, the work is done by the surface, right? So, well, okay, in, 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 yes, okay, we can, yeah, I mean, you can, you can get bogged down a lot and discussing the thing, but mostly it is like this, you know, you have the, okay. exactly, yeah, you have the, the radii, I mean, we always talk about the radii, but eventually that's the surface of the particles um, yeah. reflecting down, but, you know, there is an optimal window of reflection uh, where these particles reflect a lot, and that's around, um, you know, around alpha micrometer. So that's yeah, kind of that, the, that's, um, that's the window that's where they the, reflect the most. And that's why the engineers, um, I mean, uh, that's why our paper that we just co- come out recently about the engineering um, looked at looking at aircraft showed mm-hmm. that said that aircraft are so important because getting that really fine control of droplet size is much easier with aircraft than it is with any other technology. And that's what gives you that balance between the stratospheric right. heating and then the, the reflection. So right. in terms of the, you, you've got this produced, so basically what you're saying, you've got this kind of like hot blob of sulfate aerosols mm-hmm. over the tropics, right? Mm-hmm. So um, why, you know, I, I, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, you've got a hot blob, that's like to rise, and then it would, you'd have a, 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 a pole with circulation, it would go to the poles, mm-hmm. it would cool, it would fall. So why would you have reduced pole with transport? because you've got this hot blob and not increased pole transport. That so this is an interesting, yes. That, that, and that's why, you know, it was uh, actually, it, it was an effect that I, it was one of the, those random findings in the sense I was just looking at the overall optical depth. And I was noticing that, you know, the more we injected and the more, the, the less uh, optical depth per, uh, per teragrams of SO2 injected, we were getting closer to the poles. And I wanted to understand that, you know, because it sort of went contrary to what had been found before that, you know, you get, if you injected the equator, this time you're not injecting at the equator. We're simulating injection at 30 north and 50 north. Yeah, okay. But, uh, but and, and in south. the tropics, you're, you're injecting into this area in the tropics. And what, um, so what, you, what I think you're telling me is that 
the more you inject, the less it moves. Which the le- is- yeah, the, the more the poles kind of tend to refuse admittance into the high latitudes. Let's but put that, it like that. That, that, sense- that just seems completely arse backwards to me. So what, explain yeah. the physics behind that. What's so, going so on what, So right, what, what you said, uh, the, the kind of self-lofting of the aerosol. So the, the thing is, basically the stratospheric circulation, what it does, and it takes things up from the tropics, from the equator, it sort of yeah. lofts them up, and then it takes them towards the poles. That's the Brewer-Dobson um, circulation. That's right? the Brewer-Dobson circulation. And that, that's exactly. a single cell circulation, isn't it? So you've got one one leg that goes up and then one leg that goes down. Whereas in, yes, the, in the troposphere, in the, uh-huh. the, the troposphere, you've got three different cells, haven't you? You've got the 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 Hadley cell. Hadley, the, Farrell. Yeah, there are various, the various cell, cells. Yeah? Yes, exactly. So ex- explain this. I mean, just give us the idiot level introduction for that. Why is the stratosphere a single leg circulation system? Uh-huh. And why is the troposphere a um, a three-cell system. Well, it, it, it all goes down to how you heat up, um, you know, to, to the temperature profile in the, stra- um, in, the, in the atmosphere. So what you have in the troposphere is that, you know, you're basically getting your, you know, a pretty uniform temperature profile compared to what you see in the stratosphere. So you have a certain type of mixing, you have a sort of certain type of distribution of your energy transport. So basically what you have is that the Coriolis force then breaks down the cells for you. So my, um, my understanding of it is that the, the troposphere is warmer near the ground and then mm-hmm. colder further right. up. So as you walk up a mountain, the pressure reduces and you, right. um, you get a cooling effect, right? And yes, so, but that's, uh, and that's mostly due to, 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 again, to the fact that your ground, basically it's actually the ground that is warming you, not the sun in many ways. Uh, that's one, that's the difference between right. your environmental lapse rate and your adiabatic lapse. Rate, right, right, right. Yes. Okay. Well, so what, in whereas, the what happens in the, stra- uh-huh. in the stratosphere? Basically, all your stratosphere is con- well. The temperature in the stratosphere is controlled by ozone. So you have the tropopause, which is the coldest point between troposphere and stratosphere. Um, and then when you go up, you start getting back some warming. And that's why you get your anvil clouds that stop and they become an right, anvil because right, they hit exactly. the tro- tro- yeah. tropopause and then they can't go any further, right? Right. In so, the stratosphere, there's no clouds, mostly. Yeah. There, there, there's basically no clouds. There's just chemistry. And again, there, there's no more convection. So the, the, the air is not mixed anymore. And you have this okay. stratified air. And hence that, the name stratosphere. Hence the name stratosphere. Get, you do get... Exactly. Um, you do get weird-ass um, polar stratospheric clouds, though, don't you? you that's, that's in the that's in the um, that's in the polar closer night. to the poles. That's closer yeah, to polar the poles, night, right? Yeah, but so, but then um, you have well, you have mesosphere mesospheric clouds uh, at oh, beach latitudes. Yeah, that's you have pyro, pyro clouds sometimes reach a stratosphere, and then you have mesospheric clouds that are actually you know they are pretty fascinating because the they didn't they didn't exist before the eight hundred, or we don't have any proof that they did. But now we're seeing a big increase in mesospheric clouds because, you know, that's the water vapor reaching all the way to the mesosphere. That but anyway, cool. yes. I'm the mesosphere, Google that later. Yeah, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool thing. In Australia, there are mostly no clouds and everything is driven by, you know, your ozone chemistry. So you have, you know, your, o- your, your oxygen being continuously, your ozone being continuously dis- destroyed by the UV radiation, absorbing this UV radiation and, you know, producing heat and... So the normal temperature profile would just be would just be driven by that, and you know so, and, and that's the reason why since you have a cooler tropos, I mean you have below it's cold, and then the more you go high, 
you you go towards you know warmer temperatures and that's one of the reasons why then you have just one single cell transporting just one single piece of circulation that is actually i mean not so simple because you know it varies by season um the the, okay. the thing the thing that drives most the fact that things are transported from the uh, equator to the poles is just the fact that you have more energy more sun uh in near to near to the equator you know so you have yeah, to so it's, like a, it's like a heat energy. engine right, right. it's being it's driven by exactly yeah driven. So, so so it's just so why it changes putting more heat in mm-hmm. like if you're heating the stratosphere i still can't get my head around this explain to mm-hmm. me why when you're putting more heat into this heat engine it's like me putting the accelerator my foot mm-hmm. down and accelerator on my car and my car mm-hmm. braking so why is that happening? Why is it the opposite of what you'd intuitively expect? So, and this is because, and what we found is that basically um, the, the same cause that in a way causes what's called the stratospheric polar vortex. So um, again, the, the, stra- the, the largest part of the stratospheric circulation, so until 60 north and south, is basically this just long branch thing, bringing things up and then, um, towards high latitudes. But then when you get so close to the pole and you have months where you basically have absolutely no sun and so you have much colder temperature. So uh, basically your your wind balance, you know, your wind balance is driven by temperature and the stronger So, so in the polar is, night, so mm-hmm. in the polar night what you're saying is it's like the kind of water swelling down a plug hole, right? Yeah, I mean, so the stratospheric polar vortex is not exactly the same as the polar vortex has is defined for weather forecasts. It's a bit of a different phenomena in a way. And, you know, there are connections, but yes, yeah, so mostly you have... But, but is, the, the, is vortex, the model, if, if, I'm, if mm-hmm. I'm standing uh, on the space station and I'm looking mm-hmm. down at the North Pole in the polar light and I've got mm-hmm. magic eyes that let me see through the mm-hmm. dark, right? Is what I'm seeing like a, a bath bathtub plug with the stratospheres or swirling would, down into this you would see no you would well no what you would actually see is more like a ring a ring around 60 north 65 north of winds going clockwise in both hemispheres depending on how you're looking okay and so a little you bit know, like spinning, the spinning very fast basically so basically you have this uh, meridional gradient between the tropics and the pole and it has to be balanced somehow and it's balanced by you know the um the winds, the, the thermal wind balance. So basically, the stronger your gradient is between your tropics and your poles, the faster these winds are going to be, are going to be spinning around 60 north or 60 south. Okay. And, you know, when these winds spin, since they spin, uh, you know, and since you have to also maintain the, the, the balance between, between, uh, between meridional and latitudinal winds, Basically, what you have is that you have less air. I mean, basically, these winds sort of like shield the poles from air that would be coming from. Is it a little uh, bit like the, Ar- the Arctic circumpolar current in the ocean? Is that a similar kind of thing? Um, not. I mean, yes, you can say you can say a bit like that, but you know, it's it's really an atmospheric process in the sense that you really need. Uh, it's kind of a more direct balance between. Um, your your temperature and your and your winds okay. you know driven so, driven so, by yeah so, i mean so getting the, back, okay getting yeah, back to the core of this right you, you you put more aerosols in mm-hmm. and you slow down the pole the polar transport and and what you, you're saying is it yeah. it's because of the the changes to the polar vortex so what's happening is that polar vortex speeding up or is it you know becoming bigger and so that it's moving down towards the 
tropics what's what's actually changing the atmosphere that's that's making this counterintuitive effect happen so basically i mean as i was saying the polar vortex mostly happens in the polar night yeah because that's the moment where you have your highest gradient so basically in the tropics the temperature is always the same in in the stratosphere at every season but then you have you know the months where there's no sun in the poles so you have you have much colder pole and so your gradient is higher if you add also the stratospheric heating on top so you add this 10 15 kelvin more in the tropics you're basically increasing your gradient every time all the time and even more you're doing that when you know when you have the polar night your gradient is even bigger you know you have the same cold poles because there's nothing heating them up you know the aerosols yeah. are not heating them up so you're saying the heating effect is concentrated in the tropics right the heating effect is mostly concentrated in the tropics yes yeah. but you still have so the, but but you have this big gradient with the poles that is getting that, that it's that it remains cold so you have okay. you just magnify this effect that you would have okay. anyway from the polar vortex and so basically you just get this wind spinning even more and you 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 isolate your poles even more so you're basically you know it's sort of a the more you put the the more you put the the less gets there because just the poles by themselves tend to so um, it kind of creates a like almost like a kind of force field around the pole that... exactly that's the way I, I like to imagine it too while i was writing wow yes that is very yes. sci-fi but it was very so and you know it was very hard to uh it, well first of all it wasn't really i mean now i'm saying it like it's obvious but it wasn't and it took me a, a month for probably just to try to figure out what was going on and you know, looking if, if it was other effects, like if it was chemistry, if it was ozone changing for some reasons. But yes, now when I made the connection and you know, with the help of all the co-authors that helped me a lot into trying to figure out what was going on, when we sort of clicked and said, oh, this is what's going on. And then it was very easy to explain what was going on and uh, explain that's, to ourselves first. That's and then very, that's very, very cool. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, you know, that, that, that's fascinating. And it's always nice to kind of improve our knowledge and stuff. But what are the practical implications? I mean, what, what are we going to do differently, you know, when it comes to geoengineering or climate policy or whatever? You know, how do you see the knowledge that you've gained in this paper being a, applied? What, what, what are we going to do with it? Well, um, as, as I try to explain in the paper, you know, um, first, the first thing is sort of saying, you know, we cannot imagine us doing geoengineering to cool down the planet five degrees is not a good idea we start changing a lot of stuff and a lot of these changes start to be really important so we can uh, that's i i like to think that that's another proof in a way of sort of saying you know we cannot use geoengineering as a substitute to actually reducing our emissions because it okay. will come a point where we can actually really risk you know not a uh, we yeah, you're really, really properly risk, you messing know, around with that messing around with the right? I, yeah. I wouldn't say we would break the atmosphere because it's kind of resilient but you can definitely get to a point where you know you start getting effects that then you can maybe not control so definitely uh i think it's a very important point for me um yeah. you know to, to say that you know that's another further proof of the fact that it's not a good idea to do geoengineering to cool down the planet five degrees. And there are plenty of examples for why it would, it would be a bad idea. Um, and this is just another one of them. 
Um, okay, that's, that's really useful. So, that, I, I, but I there's also to... another one, sorry, is a, and, and that's like, you know, point number two is that um, it was kind of a nice step, the one that was done with these experiments, sort of saying, you know, up to that point, people had just said, you know, we should just inject it, the equator because we've seen Pinatubo and that was close to the equator, so we just do that. And then uh, Ben Dark. Yeah, and and some of your other work has looked at mm -hmm. doing uh, these uh, um, seasonal and non equatorial right. injections, hasn't it? Right, so yes. And, and now another other. thing that we have one of our PhD students working on, and that's going to be really cool, and we already have some really nice results, is sort of saying, you know, can we do some, you know, up to the point, up to this point, most people have always thought, well, okay, 30, 30 north is still good, but we've actually tried to go a bit further and say, you know, can we actually, is there any point in injecting after the polar vortex? So the idea, and that came partially from this, is that like, okay, at 60 North, we have this sort of obstacle that we can never overcome. But what happens if we inject? Like the event um, horizon of geoengineering, mm -hmm. right? Right. And, and so the idea was like, can we actually do something better if you inject at the poles, closer to the poles? Um, and up to now, it's an idea that's been sort of dismissed because um, uh, it doesn't you know, look you, like it's going to work. Like, why bother at the poles? Because because you would need so much more. Because you would need so much more. But yeah. you know, putting these together with the fact that we found that actually in the seasons in which you inject matters, you can really uh, you know we've so, that, so that's a future see, direction so. for your research. Is that right? Is that what you're what? looking Say to do in future? Is that what you're looking to do in future? We are, we're honestly looking at a lot of stuff and there's really, really a lot of stuff that we as a group are working on. But, you know, um, one of the things is like to sort of come up with, um, how should I put it? Um, I mean, the big question overall is in how many different ways can we do? It? So first of all, well, the main thing is, is there a perfect way to do geoengineering? Is there a way in which, you know, you can get the maximum benefit and the least amount of side effects? That's, I think, it's the biggest question, the one that yeah, you know, well, I, the one I, we strive for. Work. With, the, I've, got an, I've got an interview booked um, uh, with um, uh, a guy called Walker Lee. And right, that's our PhD student. student. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's, he's got another paper, so you're not allowed mm -hmm. to steal his thunder by talking about fair, his paper. Fair, fair, but, okay. you know, fair. No, 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 that, that's what, what Walker is doing is very important. It's and, very cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very I'm cool. going to be, I'm and, and, tomorrow. And that's the part where we also want to, you know, this is the point where is, this is not about us doing some idealized experiments anymore, but this yeah, is really the point where we start planning, talking yeah. with people and planning and, uh, right, yeah. for the seasonal stuff, I, you know, that was, that was a big, I mean, that was a project in itself, actually, so that was, you know, we concluded that part. Because it was an interesting question and we got some really interesting answers sort of saying, you know, you can get the same goals. So a lot of people, and I've discussed with a lot of, with some economists, uh, sort of saying, you know, the global thermostat and who gets to choose how much we cool. But we sort of turned this question around and said, yes, but there isn't just one way which you can cool. So this isn't just about India, China, the United States, Europe, and Africa deciding, about oh, we should cool. the optimal pan, right? Right. Yeah we should cool by 1.5, 1.6, 2 degrees. This is also about how you do it. Are there different ways to do it? Is there a best way to do it 
in terms of you know combining yeah. a lot of se- combining different Dan, types Dan, of I'm going to stop you there because yeah. I know I know you are what you're telling me and it's all very cool but I'm going to let Walker Yeah do you this should bit. fair it's fair very much we just get, us. we just get so excited all of us talking about this stuff honestly. I'm not going to let you steal your students fair, thunder, though, so. fair, 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 what fair, I am going to do before we wrap up I want to talk to you about the journey through the peer review process so uh-huh. um, did you have to go through multiple revisions? Did it get accepted with minor corrections? What, how did it happen? So for this one in particular, uh, one of the two reviewers was, found it really nice and really had just a couple of suggestions. And the other reviewer actually asked us to look at a few more things. And uh, by asking some of the questions, he, he sort of made me rethink about some of the conclusions. So it was a really in-depth review i think it was like five pages of review and it took me like you know a couple of weeks of hard work just going through all of them and responding and yeah you know, you, when you get when you get when you get those back right i had one recently and i'm like uh-huh. i know who's written his review that too that's like, that's the game that's the that's there's only big. one person in this business right that would yes. have gone to that length to kick my head in and roll me around the playground as this guy has done right that's, so, that's but that's the funny thing so that's a funny sport that we all have i think you know so sort of guess the reviewer so who was this uh and that's a, no, we shall not name names we no no, no never do name. although 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 so for this my preference is like when i review papers i always sign the reviews i don't like to be an anonymous reviewer and i've up to now it's always i mean i i like when i get non-anonymous reviews and i so i always sign my reviews I don't yeah, like so I sometimes um, I think reviews. it's publons that, that now make you publish. But you know, I, I I think it's nice to be able to review papers. Um, you know, if you if you uh, I've I've not even got my PhD yet. I mean, I've obviously mm-hmm. been in this game for a while and you know, reasonably well known in in some circles. But you know, I would feel a bit intimidated giving a bad review to a head of department. Um, but you, you know, you've got to do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the the anonymity system mean is great because it means that if you're a you know just a, a grad student or whatever and you get a, a paper from some luminary in your field and you just think well actually this is rubbish you don't have to think well this guy's going to give me a hard time at a conference if i tell them mm. what i think of this no, paper I, right you know? I, I do understand I, I do understand that this problem exists and i don't want to say that it doesn't and i have to say that up to now i probably had just one paper that i reviewed well a couple of papers that i reviewed they were really rubbish and I had, so, I had one for, recently that I wasn't even sure it was a paper. So, so for one of them, I have to I have to admit that I remained anonymous because I. I but but you know the the editor <laughs> kind of understood what I wanted to say so and you know, the paper was rejected. So, you, so basically, but, if it, if anyone gets a Dan review, right, then it means you, it's good. You, you, it's, it's <laughs> no, good. Another, you, another time, another time, I, I had this paper from uh, um, a group that was looking at some model simulations with um, with our model with the same models that I use. And they had gotten some parts of the physics like just completely wrong. They had missed some parts, so their explanation didn't make any sense. So, you know, I signed my review, but it's sort of like saying, if you want, I can help with this because you clearly, you know. Yeah, because you can go go on the paper and clean up their mess, right? And then you get your co-authorship from doing it. No, but but just, you know, because the paper needed to be completely rewritten, but, you know, it happens and it's fine. And I mean, like for this paper, it was, it's really sort of, in a way, heavy, dynamical stuff. So actually, when I submitted it, I was like, I really hope I get a reviewer that it's really an expert on this. And if he yeah. tells me that I didn't understand a single thing and everything is wrong, then it's good. <laughs> because I don't want to publish something and that someone... Oh, no, yeah, the worst thing is when you, 
Yeah, you know, the worst thing is when you get public, you get through the publication hurdles. We're just like, I noticed a missing comma, but what? And then you really publish it, and you realise that what what didn't get noticed is you've got the whole physics completely wrong, and everyone yeah. thinks you're an idiot forever. So yeah, we get it. No, go reviewer too. They're amazing. Yeah. We need them. Um, right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Dan. Um, uh, so I'm going to wrap up and okay. uh, say thanks very much, and uh, of course, rejecting your paper. Fair enough. <laughs>